Well, my assignment this afternoon is to speak to you about pastoral watchfulness, a neglected discipline. Now, when I say pastoral watchfulness, I do not mean the pastor's oversight uh, of the flock that has been entrusted to his care. He is certainly called to watch over them, but that's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk to you about the pastor's watch over himself. In other words, I want to talk to you about the pastor's self-watch. Now, how does the pastor shepherd himself? Now, that idea may sound strange to this group, since we often talk about the importance of the church, of the believing community in each other's lives. Uh, Pastors need help from other pastors. Uh, Most definitely, you need help from your divinely ordained helper, your wife. The pastor also needs help from his members for his sanctification as much as they need his help for their equipping. God's design for our sanctification, we know and we believe, is a corporate one. He has called us to build up one another by speaking the truth in love. And that loving truth speech may take the form of counsel, of exhortation, encouragement, or even the kind of intentional questioning and sorting through words and emotions that can help expose sin. Nevertheless, there is a kind of watchfulness that we are called to exercise over ourselves that must go hand in hand with an obedient willingness to have other brothers speak into our lives. Now, This kind of watchfulness is often neglected, I fear, sometimes even ignored, resulting in devastating consequences to the spiritual health of the pastor and those around him. There are, of course, many reasons why the discipline of watchfulness is often neglected and sometimes even ignored, resulting in devastating consequences to to the health of the pastor. Many reasons, some of which include ignorance, a flawed view of sanctification, arrogance, a pragmatic ministry philosophy that does not take into consideration the Christ-likeness of the minister, many reasons that can cause this discipline to be neglected. But in order to take watchfulness seriously, we must see that God has indeed called us to do this. Now, there are many Old Testament and New Testament passages that we can explore together if this were a series of talks. But for the sake of brevity, let me cite two. The first one is found in Acts 20, verse 28. Uh, You've already heard that mentioned uh, this morning. Here, as Paul instructs the Ephesian elders, he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So part of the task of caring for your church requires you to pay careful attention to yourselves. If you pay careful attention to something, it means you are greatly concerned about it. You are in a state of constant alertness or vigilance over yourself. Here's a second passage. Again, notice that it's a command. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
persist in this. So in giving your undivided attention to these two areas, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul is telling Timothy to be especially observant and alert concerning himself. Or as the old King James Version puts it, take heed unto thyself. He is told to persist in keeping a close watch on himself and his teaching for this reason. For by so doing, by being watchful in this way, he will save both himself and his hearers. The future tense will save, looks forward to the final fulfillment of our salvation. In other words, not only does the Lord command us to be watchful, which means we are sinning if we neglect it, but watchfulness is necessary for our endurance. We need this in order to run the race that is set before us. Now, friends, there are many things a pastor must pay careful attention to in his life. There are many commands and duties that we must pay careful attention to. And I think it's helpful for that reason to make it a practice in our quiet time to often meditate on the qualifications of an elder outlined for us in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, and Titus 1, 6 to 9. Or perhaps even consider the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Uh, I trust that doing this would be beneficial for your spiritual walk. Just being able to to dwell on those passages, to examine yourself and to see if your life is marked by these good works. But for this talk, what I want to do is to narrow our focus, to to narrow our focus and attention on the heart of the pastor, on being watchful over your heart. Now, in the scriptures, the word heart is used interchangeably with the mind or the soul or the inner man, that immaterial part of you, that that thinks and desires and imagines. So Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's where it begins. So the heart is like this hidden reservoir, a deep well. If the source is polluted, so will be the water that flows from it. Jesus put it like this in Mark 7.20-23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, where? Out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft. Notice that's an action, but it stems from the heart. Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, even foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The heart is also like a womb where sin is conceived. James puts it like this in James 1, 14 to 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This word desire here has a negative connotation, which means it's a sinful desire. So, This sinful desire entices you. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So not all desires are good desires. And not all thoughts are good thoughts. 
and not all attitudes are good attitudes. Uh, we see that most clearly in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Not a good attitude to have. Brothers, the Lord calls his servants to be watchful, to be alert. We are called to be awake, to not drift into a sort of spiritual sleepiness, lest we steer off course and make a shipwreck of our faith. The Puritan Thomas Brooks defined watchfulness like this. Watchfulness includes awaking, a rousing up of the soul. It is a continual, careful observing of our hearts and ways in all the turnings of our lives that we still keep close to God and His Word. I'll read that again. Watchfulness includes awaking, a rousing up of the soul. It is a continual, careful observing of our hearts and ways in all the turnings of our lives that we still keep close to God and His Word. Brothers, I trust we are men who believe this is necessary because we have come to know Christ. We have been saved by grace. Our hearts have been changed, and we now desire to please Him. This is why we sing, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And so, brothers, here are five questions for you that I pray will help and provoke or encourage you to cultivate a careful watchfulness over your hearts in dependence on the gospel for the sake of God's glory, for your own sake, and for the sake of your people. Much of what I say is directed towards pastors, but the principles here can be applied to every Christian. So here's five questions to help you cultivate a careful watchfulness. Question number one, how is your heart towards God? How is your heart towards God? And by that I mean, have you been watchful? Have you been, have you been paying close attention to how your heart processes and responds to the truths that you preach about him week after week. As you counsel and remind your members about the precious saving grace of God in Christ that is available to them, do those truths first stir your own affections for your heavenly Father? Or do you find yourself rattling off memorized truths about his love, transactionally, and not tenderly. Is the gospel of grace more amazing to you now than when you first became a Christian? Does that story still stir your heart? That the Creator God left his glory in heaven and he humbled himself and saved wicked men like you and me. Why would God, who gave us life, breath, and everything, do that for sinners? 
when he gave us everything and we spat on his face and rejected him. And then he humbles himself and enters our world and takes on flesh only to get a brutal beating and get murdered by his own creation. I wouldn't do that if I were God. Would you? Justice makes sense to me. Vengeance makes wonderful sense to me. Grace is still shocking. I hope you never get over that. Brothers, have you lost your sense of wonder when you think about the incarnation or teach about the atonement? Have you become a professional theologian who desires to master truths about God but lacks sweet communion with Him? When you prepare sermons in your study or read your Bible in your quiet time, if those times feel dry and cold, and we've all had those times at various seasons, but when you have them, do they bother you? Do they bother you? Do you pray to the Lord to stir your heart, to delight in His Word, to love His Word, to grieve over sin, to have a holy disgust at your sin, to marvel at His power, and to move your will towards greater obedience? If your heart is cold, if it has been trained by this world to reduce your attention span to tweets and blogs, maybe you need to slow down the pace of your ministry. Spend more time meditating on God's Word for the sake of your endurance. Mull over God's Word. Pray till your heart erupts in praise. Meditate on His Word till you worship. Stir your hearts. Train your heart to do that. God is gracious and He will enable you. When Solomon prayed to God at the dedication of of the temple in 1 Kings 8, he exclaimed, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. You can't contain God. The triune God of the universe, the invisible, all-knowing, all-powerful God. When you read that, and then you get to Colossians 2, 9 to 10. Brothers, it should blow your minds to read. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's talking about Christ Jesus. And the next verse says, And you have been filled in Him. You have been united to Him. His Spirit abides in you. You can now commune with the triune God of the universe who set His love on you and save you. That's your identity, Pastor. So don't look for your identity in your ministry or a building or a large budget. Brothers, before you tell your people about God being slow to anger and gracious, has your own heart been moved to awe by that? In Daniel chapter 5, we read of an arrogant king named Belshazzar who mocked God by drinking wine in the holy vessels that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. And Belshazzar sinned defiantly. And when Daniel confronted him in Daniel 5.23,
he rebuked the king by saying this. Listen to this. He said, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. These are lifeless idols, said Daniel. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Brothers, do you know what is required for you to be able to sin against God? You need to be alive. You need to be alive. Daniel says, this God holds your very breath, Belshazzar. When you are lifting up your wine glass in his, with his holy vessels and dancing on the table and mocking him, God was keeping you alive. Brothers, when you're yelling at your wife, he's holding your breath. When you're clicking that mouse and seeing things that you shouldn't be seeing, your Savior, while being grieved, is sustaining your heartbeat. If He wills, you will drop dead. Can you imagine the irony of this? For us to be able to sin, to neglect watchfulness, to neglect prayer, to discipline our children in anger, to envy other men's ministry, to do all of that, you and I need a heartbeat. He holds your breath. Brothers, if that does not cause your heart to weep, that does not cause you to marvel at His grace and patience towards you, how will you ever be patient with His sheep? How's your heart towards God? Question number two. How is your heart towards your sin? Do you pay careful attention to your heart when sinful desires rear their ugly heads? Pride, anger, covetousness, impatience. You know, some of my friends would say, uh, I'm a patient man. And uh, they say that because they have not seen me visibly impatient. But knowing my own sinful heart, I can tell you that when someone has asked me the same question for the 50th time, if you could get an audio feed to my heart, you might hear this, oh, for crying out loud. How many times do I have to explain this thing to you? You know, I need to reckon with that thought. I have to jump on that impulse like a cancerous tumor and confess it to the Lord and kill it by the Spirit's power. And that's going to require me to reflect on the glory of Christ, His humble incarnation, His obedience, His patient suffering, His saving love, so that I would put on the mind of Christ and pray for the Spirit's power to water those seeds of truth to produce the fruit of patience and love. Because that was not a loving thought. There was nothing Christ-like about it. What does 1 Corinthians 13.4 say? Love is patient. Patience is a willingness to put up with, to bear with a brother or sister, to be mindful as you teach and exhort and counsel that there are people at different milestones in their spiritual growth and understanding. 
in those moments, brothers, when, when we have thoughts or desires that are unloving and sinful, they are symptomatic of a gospel forgetfulness. And you need to remind your heart. You need to speak to your heart. Those responses, those impulses, though they may never make it to your lips. And praise God that they don't. Praise God for His grace that is evident in your life. Praise the Holy Spirit for the fruit of self-control. But those impulses require our attention. They are the early symptoms of a disease that you don't want. Brothers, you know this, that sanctification begins in the heart. Be watchful. Because if you leave those impatient thoughts without bringing the gospel to bear on them, if you turn a blind eye to lustful thoughts or thoughts of bitterness, one day those thoughts, those desires will grow and give birth to actual words and actions. If we believe James 1, that's what will happen. So be on guard that you do not trivialize sinful desires. Be careful that when those desires arise, you do not excuse them or normalize them. Just because your culture or your community is indifferent to them or trivializes them. Be watchful that you don't let worldliness creep in. David Wells in his book, Losing Our Virtue, gave us this very helpful definition of worldliness. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. And remember that worldliness comes in different flavors. If it's normal in your culture to assert your rights and your way, and you learn that such behavior runs contrary to the humility that God requires of you, then take God's side. Take God's side. at the expense of being looked down on your community. And if you take God's side in your head, but find your heart not being stirred to rejoice in the truth, pray and ask the Lord to stir your affections according to the truth. He will answer that prayer. Brothers, as you watch over your hearts, remember that our hearts respond to some sins differently than others. Based on the kind of sinful cultures our hearts have been exposed to. In my country, in my home state, domestic violence is very common. It's common for men to beat their wives. Recognizing that that is a sin was easy when I became a Christian. But it took a while to teach my heart to grieve, to be shocked every time I hear about that sin. There is a kind of indifference or hardness that sets in based on whatever culture you've been soaking in. It took a daily regimen of feeding my soul with the biblical truth of what biblical love looks like and meditating on it so that my heart could respond to the ugliness of sin with renewed affections that honor God. So brothers, guard your hearts. Be careful to take God's side against your sin. Recognize its wretchedness 
and mourn over it. Take those hidden sinful desires, those thoughts of envy or lust, and describe them and define them the way the Lord would. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What does that mean? It means that we don't do the things we're supposed to do. We do the things we're not supposed to do. What does that mean at the heart level or the mind level? It means we don't think and feel the way we're supposed to. And we do feel and think the way that we're not supposed to. That's a problem, isn't it? Didn't Jesus say that to look upon a woman with lust is to commit adultery in the heart? We need to carefully watch over our desires. Brothers, let Scripture give you the tools to cultivate vigilance over your heart. Think, of, think about all the ways <clears throat> that Scripture describes sin. Sin is uncleanness. It pollutes. Paul describes it as leaven. It spreads like a spiritual cancer. It's a spiritual disease describing sinners as blind and deaf, as those with hardened hearts and uncircumcised ears. Sin lies. It steals. It destroys. One author writes, sin is anti-law, anti-righteousness, anti-God, anti-spirit, anti-life. It is irrational. It is deviant. It is perverse. It is injustice. It is iniquity. It is ingratitude. In the book of Exodus, sin is disorder and disobedience. It is faithlessness, lawlessness, godlessness. Sin is the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. It is both a transgression and a shortcoming. It is a spoiling of goods, a staining of the garments, a hitch in one's gait, a wandering from the path, fragmenting of the whole, end quote. Brothers, you cannot identify sinful desires or thoughts, nor can you confess them well if you don't see your sin for what it truly is. We must see our sins with scriptural eyes, even our sinful desires. We must grieve, we must mourn over them as we confess them to Christ. You see, the grace of true repentance begins by seeing the beastliness of our iniquities in the light of Scripture. We must see, as the Puritan said, the exceeding sinfulness of our sins. Brothers, if you don't see how treacherous your sin is, you won't understand how glorious your Savior is. If that doesn't happen, you will not be able to grasp the glory of this statement that for our sake, our wretched sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? This is the gospel. This is the good news that we preach week after week. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
that he perfectly obeyed God's law and he took our place. He died on the cross for our sins as a substitute, and then he rose from the dead to give us new life. And if you repent and put your trust in his saving death, you will be saved. Brothers, as ministers of the new covenant, we ought to know this. We ought to remember that we have been born again. We have been given a new heart that God's Spirit abides in us. We ought to hate our sin with a holy hatred, remembering that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on our behalf so that we might be forgiven and live. We just sang about that. The only fitness He requires is for you to see his, your need for Him. Come, you sinners, poor and needy. Go to your Savior. You know, Exodus 36, that passage that looks forward to the new covenant, it tells us what our new relationship will be towards our sin when the Lord gives us new hearts and when He puts His Spirit within us. Listen to verse 31 of Exodus 36. Then, so when this happens, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves. You will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Brothers, there is a kind of self-loathing that is right, and it is the mark of a new heart. We must loathe. We must mourn over our sinful thoughts and our impulses and our desires. The Puritans used to say that with regard to their sins, Christians are called to a perpetual brokenheartedness. Be careful to not just identify sinful inclinations and thoughts, but be disciplined to love what God loves and hate what He hates. You know, the strength of your temptation is proportional to the strength of the loves that you have cultivated in your heart. Be on guard that as soon as you feel that tug, when you feel temptation's power, be quick to address those misdirected loves. You won't be tempted by something that your heart hates. You'll be tempted by what it loves. For some of you that might sound disturbing, maybe even troubling. Talk to another brother, someone you trust. Talk to them about that so that you can weed out that dishonorable desire. Don't let them grow. Don't show hospitality to those sinful thoughts when they spring up. Don't ignore it for weeks on end. Otherwise, when you come back to address it, you will only find a more monstrous and hideous beast that has hardened your heart. Remember what Romans 13, 14 says. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision. Give no room. Be watchful. Be careful that there are no stowaways on the ship of your heart because you've been careless to guard it. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Mark 14, 38. Question number three. How is your heart towards yourself? What do you think of yourself? How important do you think you are at your church? 
in moments of difficulty is your first thought, I can't believe this ha is happening to me. Brothers, guard your heart against an overestimation of your importance. Have a biblical view of yourself. That you are made in the image of God. That the Lord has called you to care for His sheep. That your standing before the Lord is based on what Christ did for you and not on your performance. Whatever gifts you have has been given for the building up of His blood-bought church. You are His servant, His soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 2 Timothy 2.4 So you may preach, someone else may counsel. It is the Lord who gives the growth and grants repentance. Does your heart rejoice to see other churches flourishing? Or do you see your church as your little kingdom? You know, if an unbeliever sits under your preaching for several weeks, goes to another church and hears the same gospel and gets saved, how do you feel about that? Are you keeping score? If you're watchful over your heart and growing in your knowledge of Christ and His beauty and His holiness and His grace, then you will know that you are loved, that you are precious to the Lord, that you won't think much of yourself. Because you will say, like Paul, all that I did was because of the grace of God. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.30. Think about the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life doesn't see himself as the greatest of saints, but the chief of sinners. Brothers, are you attentive enough to yourself that you recognize your stubborn sins, the ones that you have the most trouble with? Are you able to identify those triggers that lead up to your sinful thoughts or actions? What was happening? Who were you with? What were you thinking? What were you wanting? Do you fool yourself into thinking that wicked company won't corrupt you? Brothers, this sort of attentiveness about yourself displays a mind that loves the Lord Jesus and wants to do whatever it takes to grow in holiness. So examine your heart. Examine your motives. The day is coming when the Lord will bring to light the things that are now hidden. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. Examine your motives. That doesn't mean we'll always get it right. We should have examined them nevertheless. Watch out for those things that are not sinful and yet can hinder your growth in holiness. Things that can slow you down. For example, listening to your favorite rock song may not be sinful, but if it's going to trigger memories from your sinful past that will trigger sinful imaginations and sinful fantasies, then don't listen to that song. Heaven is far more important than that song. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body go into hell. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Brothers, there are things in our respective lives that can hinder our holiness and make the pursuit of righteousness harder. Do you know what those things are for you? Be on guard against the kind of thoughts that come into your mind through web pages and blogs and YouTube videos, magazine covers, or even unedifying conversations. You know, that old computer science expression, garbage in, garbage out, holds true for our minds as well. D.A. Carson writes, imagination is a God-given gift, but if it is fed dirt by the eye, it will be dirty. All sin, not least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. This is why Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Question number four. How is your heart towards the world? And by that I don't mean, do you know that the world is perishing and that you must preach the gospel? I'm sure you know that. But is the default position of your heart, is it this? That you relate to the world as your ally in furthering God's kingdom purposes? Do you think that the unregenerate world and the rulers of this present evil age have common ground with the church? Can the kingdoms of this world and the governments of this world give us biblical definitions of love and justice? Do you find it hard to accept that the Lord has put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the children of God? Do you feel embarrassed to say to someone that you are a pastor for fear of being shunned? Do you feel pressured to engage in a conversation that is suited more to the tastes of this world, just to gain the respectability that the world offers? Brothers, we must be wary of any impulse in our hearts that causes us to drift towards ministry models or philosophies that appeal to unbelievers or ministry models that will win the world's approval. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard of, heard of this when men say to me, yes, I see that the Bible says this and that, but it won't work in my country won't work in my culture. Brothers, have you considered that perhaps that demonstrates a heart that has a low view of the power of God's word and a misunderstanding of what a church is and what a pastor is called to do? And if you have never read William Still's book, The Work of a Pastor, I would encourage you to do so. Listen to what he says about this particular conundrum in men's hearts. He says, it is to feed sheep 
It is to feed sheep that men are called to churches and congregations. Whatever they may think they are called to do. If you think that you are called to keep a largely worldly organization miscalled a church, going with infinitesimal doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs or stimulants, then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of ministry and go and be a street scavenger. A far healthier and more godly job, keeping the streets tidy, than cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap in the delusion that you are doing a job for God. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats, and let them do it in goatland. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the Word of God, by His Spirit, changes as well as maddens men. If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the Word of God. Brothers, if the world is under the power of the evil one, are you aware and vigilant of Satan's schemes? 2 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15. Paul writes that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Brothers, do you have a posture of discernment as you choose books to read? Or are you careless to read anything or watch anything by someone who calls themselves a Christian teacher? You know, most bad theologians are very nice people. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's saying all that to cause us to look to the Lord and pray for our sanctification, for our ordinary sanctification. That's the context of this verse. Brothers, a right understanding of the world and a right understanding of Satan's opposition to our sanctification will cause us to be watchful over our hearts and vigilant in prayer. What do you do when you see your sin? You wallow in self-pity? Discouraged? Oh, I'm discouraged by my sin. Let me sit here in the corner and beat myself up. You know, the Puritans would say, repent of your discouragement and flee to Christ. He has conquered sin. Sin is no longer your master. Flee to Jesus. Go to him for his cleansing power. Remember your justification. Remember that Satan is the accuser of the brothers. Don't be fooled by his schemes. Remember that he presents the bait, but hides the hook. Satan often paints sins with virtue's colors, doesn't he? 
why else will you be tempted by it? Unless it had some resemblance of good. You know, this is what causes our minds to drift into fantasy. So be watchful over your heart about what you daydream about. Satan knows that you're too smart to think lustful thoughts. He might sanitize those for you so that you may start imagining a life married to this other woman because you had a fight with your wife last night. You might start daydreaming about what it would be like to occupy another man's pulpit, pastor that church. Oh, sounds very good. Clean, sanitized. No one's taking off their clothes in that thought. He paints sin with virtues, colors. Be watchful. Be on guard. Address your heart. Address your discontentment. Deal with those sinful impulses. Don't be fooled that repentance is easy. Oh, I'll deal with it later. You'll only come back to find a more hardened heart. Don't let him accuse you of legalism when you're avoiding occasions to sin. Flee to Christ. Trust his grace. Remember that holiness is joyful. And finally, question five. How is your heart towards the church? Do you love the church? Do you long to be among God's people? Because you see that God has gifted even the most immature saint with the task of encouraging you and building you up? Brothers, some of the most encouraging words I have heard from people that I least expected to hear from. Do you see your flock as a burden or a privilege? Be on guard against any kind of lovelessness towards the blood-bought people of God. Are you, are you the kind of shepherd who is affectionate towards his people? Do you laugh with them? Do you weep with them? Or are you largely blind to their pain and confusion and fears? Brothers, beware of any tendency that may creep into your heart to make you want to lord it over Christ's sheep. We're told not to do that, 1 Peter 5. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Being examples. You know, they, these members, your flock, they are God's means to sanctify you. This is the last point because this is the most important point. You see, your personal self-watchfulness is important, but it has limitations, doesn't it? Why does it have limitations? 
Because we're sinners, saved sinners, no doubt. We're often blind to our own sins. We can't see them very well. This is why we need one another. So, brothers, do you, when you walk into your church, do you see other members as your enemies? Sort of nosy, wanting to know what's happening in your life? Do you see them as brothers and sisters who care for your sanctification? Are you the kind of person who's approachable? How do you respond when confronted with your sin? Are you defiant, defensive, arrogant? You see, in the end, we need more than just personal watchfulness. We need the church. We need a mutual vigilance squad and a commitment of love that says we will do all that we can to help each other get to heaven with the Lord's help. This is why we've outlined this in our church covenant. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, get this, exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. You see this in Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, don't we? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers, your heart should swell with gratitude for your congregation. We are called to be shepherds of souls. Let us model that for our people and teach them what it means to be watchful. Because we are not our own, but belong both body and soul to our Savior, who redeemed us and preserves us by his power through faith. So be watchful and stand firm. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.